0: The scripture passage we'll be looking at this morning is found in 1 Peter chapter 3. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 18 through 22. This is God's holy and errant word. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Well, our attention this past week, these past few days, has certainly been on the tragedy in Aurora, Colorado. And I think that those shootings were more unnerving to us than other types of mass murder that happen around the world, partly because of the context in which they happened. I mean, think about it. Don't you feel very at rest and secure as you sit in a movie theater waiting to watch a movie? the places where we feel we're most safe and secure, when those places are violated, it makes us really, really insecure at a very deep level. Of course, an even better example of that were a few years ago, also in Colorado at the Columbine High School. And again, deeply disturbing to us because schools for children are supposed to be such a safe and secure place. I was struck by how many people made comments similar to this after hearing about what happened in Colorado this week. Heard the same thing years ago after Columbine. I just wanted to run home and hug my kids. It's a very strong instinct when your security is shaken like that to find some source of protection, to, to make you, yourself and your family safe. When things like this happen, life all of a sudden feels a lot more dangerous. And I think it affects us here in this prosperous country and culture maybe more so than people in other cultures because we have, I think, kind of a medically and technologically, technolog- technologically? I don't know what word I'm looking for there, uh, induced sense of false security. You know, we have medicines and medical technology and we have, you know, alarm systems. We have so many things in our lives, even insurance, those kinds of things that make us feel like our life isn't dangerous at all. And as I read about history and read about my own family history, I go back a few generations and I look at the the uh, family tree, and I see I had a, a great-grandfather who had something like 18 children, but six of those children died before they, they got to the age of five or six. That wasn't uncommon in those days. Death and disease were always seeming to be knocking at the door for people. I think we in our culture don't realize dangerous the world really is we don't realize what's going on in the homes of the people in our own neighborhood and as a result we go out into our insulated culture and we try to tell people Jesus saves and understandably they respond saves from what I don't need a savior I feel pretty secure in this part of Peter's epistle, he's writing, if you remember the last couple of weeks, we've seen he's writing to suffering Christians, particularly Christians who are suffering for righteousness sake, as he says. They're suffering because of the relationship with Jesus Christ, because they're walking in his ways, because they're speaking his words, because they're trying to bring the life-transforming message of the gospel to the dark world around them, they're suffering, they're making sacrifices, they're losing possessions, some of them are being imprisoned, some of them are even having their lives threatened. And Peter in this section, as we've seen, is trying to tell these suffering Christians, suffer for righteousness' sake the way that Christ suffered for righteousness' sake. Be Christ-like as you sacrifice, as you suffer, as you are attacked by those in the world. In other words, suffer with hope. Suffer with gentleness. Suffer with respect, even towards your enemies. And here as we come to the end of chapter 3, still very much in the midst of this Teaching. Peter wants to point these believers to the source of that kind of confidence, that kind of courage, that kind of security that enables you to stand in the face of threat and say, I respect you, I love you, and I'm even going to love my enemies. It's interesting that you look at how Peter wants to underline that point and point to that source. In wording that is very difficult for us to understand, this is one of the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament, maybe in all of Scripture, to interpret correctly. It's been a long, hard week for me working on this text. And in my studies, I came across what Martin Luther said in his commentary on the end of 1 Peter 3. This is what he said... A wonderful text this is. And a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. So that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I just want you to understand, if Martin Luther said that about this passage, I'm shaking in my boots up here to try to tell you that I think I know what Peter's saying in this text. It is uncomfortable to walk where Luther feared to tread, but I do think it's worth the trip. Don't lose sight of the fact, and I'm going to have to spend a little extra time in what I would call exegesis here to try to help us understand what Peter's saying, but just don't lose sight of the fact as we're working through the details of this text this morning, don't lose sight of the fact that in the context what Peter is trying to say in a very relevant way to suffering Christians, people who are suffering for righteousness' sake, here is where your security lies. Here is the anchor of your soul. Here is what's going to give you the courage and the boldness to continue to stand firm for Christ no matter how difficult life in this world becomes. What is the basis of our security? And he's talking about security for the very core of who we are. Sometimes when you think about, you know, what causes fear, the fear of losing, you know, that's what causes insecurity, is the fear of losing something, your home, your car, your job, or some person, your husband, your wife, your mother, your father, your children. Those are the deepest levels of insecurity we face, the fear of losing these things that are so important to us. Sometimes you'll hear the question, if your house were burning down, what would you run in and grab first? Sometimes to show you what your most fear, biggest fear of losing something is. Well, what if the whole universe were being purged by fire? (laughs) What would you grab first? Well, your soul and the souls of the people closest to you. Those are the most important things. So where do we find the security for our souls? And notice verse 18 Where Peter points for the source of security. Let me read verse 18 to you again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You see what he's pointing to? He's pointing to the gospel. Matter of fact, commentators Love this verse because it's a very clear presentation of the essence of the gospel. Matter of fact, a lot of commentators think that Peter actually here is quoting an ancient creed because obviously every phrase is well thought out representing some essential part of what we proclaim to be the gospel, the good news of salvation. The whole gospel is here. Let me just walk you through it quickly. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Every aspect of the beauty of what we call penal substitutionary atonement is referred to there. In other words, Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, came to earth, added to his divine nature, a human nature, and in that human nature he lived a perfect human life, kept every nuance, every jot, every tittle of the law of God, lived in perfect righteousness, but yet offered up his perfect life as a sacrifice on the cross. And as he hung on the cross, the wrath of God that our sins deserved, the sins of all of God's people of every age was placed upon Christ, and as He suffered on the cross, God the Father turned His back upon Him and He endured the isolation and desertion of the Father of an eternity's worth of wrath against our sins. The righteous suffered once for us, the unrighteous, so that the penalty for our sins Might be paid for in full. So that God might forgive us and accept us, not because of our righteousness, but because of the gift of Christ's righteousness to us. Peter says once. He suffered once, literally once for all. Never to be repeated. It's final. It's complete. It's sufficient. We are told that Buddha, when he died, his last words were these Work hard to gain your own salvation. Those were Buddha's last words. Work hard to gain your own salvation. Remember what Christ's last words were. It is finished. It is paid in full. It is complete. Your salvation is a gift to you because Christ accomplished it on the cross. Why did He die for us, Peter says? That He might bring us to God. Not just to clean us up, not just to take away the record of our sins, not just to give us the gift of His righteousness, but having done that, to present us to His Father so that His Father might adopt us into His eternal family as sons and daughters, prince and princesses of His kingdom. That's why Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. It was to bring us to God for all eternity. And then in verse 18, he concludes the gospel message by telling us how we can know for sure that Christ's death on the cross accomplished this great salvation. How do we know that for sure? Peter says because he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Or I think a better translation there, and you'll see it in your footnote if you have the ESV, by his capital S spirit, by the Holy Spirit. Commentators are divided on how to translate that last phrase, either in the spiritual realm he was resurrected, or I think better in context, and I think what Peter is really saying is by the power of the Holy Spirit, which the rest of the New Testament clearly teaches, that it was the direct work of the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. So we know that Christ's death paid the price for our sins because God the Father, through the Spirit, raised Him from the dead. Conquering death, conquering sin, proving that He accepted the sacrifice of Christ's life in our place. You see what I'm saying? The whole gospel is here. This is the basis of our salvation. The work of Christ completed on the cross and verified by the resurrection. It's factual, it's historic, it literally happened, and it's done and it's complete. That's the basis of our security. But how do we appropriate it? How do we enter into it? How do we experience that security? Well, that's, I believe, what Peter goes on to talk about. And why he raises the time period of Noah. This is what confuses everybody. How do we experience the safety and security, the eternal safety and security that is offered to us at the cross? In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first step, according to Peter, is you need to believe. You need to believe the message. You need to believe the preaching of Christ. Look at verses 19 and 20. He was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. We're talking about the preaching of Jesus Christ, the heralding, the word there, is not the word evangelize, but it's the word caruso, which means to to proclaim, to herald, a message. And so that security that is in the cross comes to men through proclamation. But what proclamation of Christ is he referring to? And this is where historically scholars, pastors, teachers, commentators go separate ways. This is where it gets difficult to interpret. Basically, I'll try to give this to you quickly, and I don't have any time to go into what the views that I don't believe are the right interpretation, but I will mention them so you're aware of what they are. First of all, there is there have been some in the history of the church that believe that between the death and the resurrection of Christ, that Christ went into hell and there proclaimed the message of the gospel to those that are, were spirits in prison in hell. That's one position on this. The early church father, Origen, felt that that's what this passage was teaching. But there's no hint anywhere of Jesus doing that anywhere else in Scripture. If it's taught, it's only taught here. Secondly, why does Peter only mention souls or spirits of those who lived during the days of Noah And then thirdly, why would he preach the gospel after people have died? Because there is no chance for salvation once you have died and gone to hell. So this, and there's another variation on this the Catholic Church developed later about Christ going into what they call limbo, which is an extra-biblical teaching or unbiblical teaching they came up with of where the Old Testament saints were. Again, why did he only mention, no, anyway, we won't even go there. Hopefully you can all see that that does not fit with scriptural teaching. The second position on this, which has actually become more popular recently, and a lot of commentators I respect hold this position, they believe that between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, that at some point between his resurrection and his ascension, he went through the spiritual realm, and the spirits in prison that are referred to here by Peter are the demons, the fallen angels who are imprisoned, waiting for Judgment Day, and that Christ, between his resurrection and his ascension, he went into the spiritual realm and proclaimed or heralded his victory through his death and resurrection to those demons. I hope this doesn't sound flippant or facetious, but to me, almost like a spiking of the ball in the end zone kind of thing, celebrating his victory over the powers and authorities of of darkness, before he took his seat at the right hand of the Father. I do believe it's possible that you can see that interpretation in this text, but I don't think it's the best understanding of it. And I think it's because in this context, it goes back to why, why does Peter bring up Noah here? What's the relevance of Noah to his point? And let me just give you what I believe Peter is saying in summary, and then I'll work back through it. Peter, I think, here is referring to to the spirit of Christ, that same spirit who raised him from the dead, that spirit of Christ was in Noah when Noah lived on the earth and enabled Noah to proclaim a gospel type message to the people in his day who then rejected his message and are now in Peter's day and in our day now. Imprisoned in hell, waiting for the day of judgment because they rejected Peter, because they rejected Noah's preaching. Now, if you don't quite understand what I just said there, be patient because I'm going to work back through it now. Peter, again, is trying to encourage suffering believers. They're trying to live out the gospel, they're trying to proclaim the gospel to a fallen world, a dark culture. They're facing persecution, rejection, and so he wants to encourage them to stand firm in their hope. And so he points to the days of Noah. Why the days of Noah? Because, according to Genesis 6, those were very, very dark days. Wickedness was great upon the earth to such a degree that there was only one family that was still holding to the hope of the covenant that had been given all the way back in the days of the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve had fallen. The hope of the seed of the woman that would someday crush the head of the seed of the serpent. There was only one family still in relationship with God living by faith in that day. Wickedness was great and the faithful were few. And if the Spirit that's referred to at the end of verse 18 means the Holy Spirit, then what verse 19 is saying is that by the Holy Spirit, by whom Not in which, but by whom, which is a a perfectly good translation of of that phrase in the original Greek. By whom he went and proclaimed. In other words, the same Spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead is also the same Spirit of God who went and proclaimed in the days of Noah. Christ preached, the pre-incarnate Christ, Christ has existed since eternity past, The pre-incarnate Christ Christ, went in the days of Noah to preach to the people of the days of Noah through Noah. And I get some confirmation of this if you just go back two chapters to chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. Remember what we read there in verses 10 and 11. Peter is describing the gospel and he says concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them. You catch that phrase? The spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Peter, just two chapters earlier, is saying that the spirit of Christ was in the prophets of the Old Testament, including Noah, and was showing them elements of the gospel, the sufferings of Christ that was to come. They prophesied of the completed work of Christ on the cross. So the Spirit of Christ spoke through the Old Testament prophets, and we know that Noah was a prophet, that Noah was a preacher. You might say to me, how do we know that? I don't remember that from the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis doesn't make any reference to Noah preaching, but Peter does. Go over to Second Peter for a moment. Chapter two. Second Peter chapter two, verse five. If he, God, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald, same word, a herald, a preacher of righteousness with seven other, others. And he goes on to talk about the flood. Peter, by God's revelation, knew that Noah had been a preacher of righteousness. So the Spirit of Christ was in Noah, and that by the power and by the revelation of the Holy Spirit, Noah was preaching to his generation about the righteousness of God. And so how do sinners like you and me, or anybody out there in the world, enter into the safety and security of the gospel of Jesus Christ, one at the cross? How do we do that? First, you need to believe the message. In every age, in Noah's day, in Peter's day, and in our day, as Paul says in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We must believe Christ's word. Well then, what is the essence of that message? We know what the gospel message is, but what's the essence of the message that Noah Preached. If Noah was a preacher of righteousness, what was that message? And that brings us to the second step, which is you believe and then you repent. You believe the message, the promise, and then you turn from your sin to the Lord. In Genesis 6, it says, God delayed the judgment of the flood for 120 years. The cup of iniquity of the world was full, but God delayed his judgment for 120 years, it says at the beginning of Genesis 6, before Noah is introduced. Why did God delay? It was to give an opportunity for repentance. The kindness, the patience of God is to lead us to repentance. And so, while Noah was building the ark by God's instruction, he was also preaching the gospel as he understood it. He was saying to those around Him, God is holy. God is righteous. You are a sinner. You have broken His laws. Turn from your sins. Trust Him. He has given us these precious promises. Believe in His promises. And enter into the ark. And you'll be saved. That has to have been A little bit of inference there, but that has to have been the message of Noah that he preached while he was building the ark, while God was delaying those 120 years. Well, then, why were these spirits in prison? That's the next phrase we look at in verse 20. Because, it says, they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. These spirits weren't in prison while Noah was preaching to them because the spirits are being referred to are the unbelievers in the day of Noah. They're in prison in the day in which Peter writes these words. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, these spirits today are in prison because in Noah's day these people rejected the offer of of faith and repentance that Noah had presented to them. They rejected the message in Noah's day, and so when they died, their body went to dust, and their spirits went to prison, went to judgment, went into hell. And that's where they are to this day, Peter writes, and that's where they still are. It helps to look over again at uh, chapter 4, because Peter speaks in a similar way. Just to say, is, it, is it, does Peter write like that or think like that? Look at verse 6 of 1 Peter 4. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. When he says the gospel was preached to those who are dead, does he mean that whoever he's talking about preaching the gospel were preaching to corpses? No, that's not what he means. He means... They were preached to them while they were alive, but today they're dead. And so in a similar way, back in chapter 3, he's saying Noah preached his gospel, as he understood it, to the sinners in his day. And they were alive physically in his day, but now they are dead and their souls are in prison. And I think that's the proper way to understand his reference to them being in prison now, one more confirmation of that. Let me take you over to 2 Peter chapter 2. It's in, I read a moment ago in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, where it says that Noah was a herald of righteousness. And then he goes on to talk about how Noah was, and Lot were both deeply troubled by the wickedness of their day. But then look just down at verse 9. It says, If the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial, speaking of Lot and Noah... Then, okay, then if the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. You see what he's saying? God saves his people and those who reject the gospel message are under punishment. They're being kept under punishment until the day of judgment. And again, I think these are the same people it, from Noah's days referring to that are spirits in prison. So I hope you followed me through that because it helps, to, I think, to read what Peter's saying here. And again, to put it in the broader context, Peter is telling us that things have not changed from the days of Noah. In Peter's day, unbelievers were still scoffing at the idea of God's judgment and the need for salvation. We know this because, again, let me take you over to 2 Peter chapter 3. Listen to the parallels to what Peter is saying here, beginning in verse 4. They, speaking of unbelievers, scoffers, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the day of judgment? For ever since the fathers fall asleep, fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, water, by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged, was flooded with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Do you see the parallel of what Peter is saying to the believers in his day to what was true in the day of Noah? God has delayed judgment. We all deserve His wrath and condemnation for all eternity. We all deserve to be in hell. But there is... An opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. There's an opportunity to be saved. you got to believe the message of the Gospel and you need to turn from your sins. God is delaying His judgment so that you have the opportunity to repent. And so it is true in our day. Let me just give you what I think. Again, let me give you the bottom line again of what I think Peter is saying in these verses. He's saying... By his spirit, Jesus Christ went and preached through Noah the prophet to those who disobeyed while God was waiting patiently, giving them opportunity to repent. They refused, and so they are now spirits in prison and hell awaiting the final judgment. That's what he's saying here. And he's saying to believers, you still have the opportunity to preach the message of Noah, to preach the message of David, to preach the message of the prophets, to preach the message of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of Christ is still on earth. God is still delaying His judgment. And because of that, you will suffer for righteousness' sake. But hold fast. Stay firm. Because your confidence is in the message that you preach, the gospel of Christ. And that's why, and I don't have time to dwell on this, he brings in baptism at the end. So he says, believe, repent, and then be baptized. Believe, repent, and be baptized. That's what they preached in the book of Acts. Believe the message, return from your sins, and be baptized. Enter into the visible community of believers and receive the sign of the covenant. Verse 21. That's why Peter brings us in at this point. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism corresponds to the saving work of God in the days of Noah. You You'd talk about type and anti-type, if you know what I mean by that. The saving of God's people in the days of Noah through the ark while he poured out judgment on the earth is similar to how God is still saving people today, and baptism represents that. Similar to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 where he says that the people of Israel were saved through the waters of judgment of the Red Sea while judgment wiped away their enemies and the Egyptians. God's people were baptized, Paul says, through the Red Sea. These New Testament writers are just looking at how God saved his people in the past and saying, look at how this is still in some ways how we are saved today. God is going to judge the earth, but he's going to provide a means of salvation. Believe, repent, and be baptized. He says baptism saves you. Obviously, we don't believe. We know the Scriptures don't teach that the act of baptism saves. It's what baptism represents that saves us. It's what baptism represents. The washing away of sin the renewing work of the Holy Spirit, being united to Christ by faith in his death and his resurrection. That's why, it's really what Paul's talking about in Romans 6, beginning in verse 3. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father,